How many times have you had somebody blather on about something and inside you're going, could you just tell me what this is? Like, could you just stop and explain how this works? Like, that's what we mm. naturally do. So if you're applying for a job, it's the same thing. The, you just got to get the core information out in its simplest form, in as few words as possible, so that your audience can build that story and they just want the value. They don't want neuro-linguistic programming. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today's guest is a New York Times bestseller of the book, The Three-Minute Rule. Brant Pinvidic has sold more than 300 TV shows and movies to different networks in his uh, time being a one of the top largest production companies in the country, or in the U.S. anyways. And Brad was so successful in selling his concepts to other individuals, he said, I need to figure out what is it that I'm doing or at least document what I'm doing so that other people can have what he calls the three-minute rule. Have you ever met somebody for the first time and they just go on and on and on and you don't even know what they're talking about? And so he really distills it down that you have about three minutes to get to the point and be able to, so that people can go further. Not that you're going to only talk for three minutes, but get to the point in three minutes. Now, that being said, here's my three minutes. Is This show is sponsored by CRG, Consulting Resource Group, and our focus is to help create self-awareness and self-mastery in individuals all around the world. And one of the ways that we do that is we create online courses and so our, our last one and we talk about it with Brant a little bit is to be clear and authentic in our messaging you know the reason that CRG exists is to help others to really realize their potential to help you to live lead and work on purpose and our tools and resources are there to help you contribute to that end so I just want to encourage that if you haven't already done so we have our new uh, course, What Do You Really Value? Based on our values, preference indicator, we take you through step-by-step step on, first of all, clarifying your values, and then what does that mean, and what are the steps to take so that those values are fulfilled in your life? So thank you again, as always, for uh, listening. If you like what we're doing, please, please pass it on. Let other people know. Uh, leave a positive comment and whatever. Uh, platform you're listening on. Thanks for listening. Here's your episode of Secrets of Success. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Well, today we have a New York Times bestseller. And this individual came recommended to me by my friend said, listen, this is the best book that I have read or listened to in the last 10 years. And so we were fortunate enough to get the author of this book on the show, Brant Pinvidic. Did I say that right, Brant? Yeah, you did. You got it. Brant Pinvidic. That's me. <laughs> okay. So Brant, thanks for helping with this dyslexia guy. So uh, Brant, you've written the book, The Three-Minute Rule, but we'll get to that in the second half of the show. You have accolades on all kinds of, I was reading in your bio that you've done like 300 TV productions or, oh, yeah. or, or I said, what the heck? You're, you're not old enough. You need to be like 175 to have done that. 
Well, so, listen, I've been in, I've been in Hollywood for you know almost twenty years, and you know I pitched thousands and thousands of TV shows. The you know the three hundred that we made in some version are just the tiny tip of the iceberg. I mean, I had so many that didn't get made, or almost got made, or should have got made. I got you know I got hundreds of those too. Well, uh, I think uh, some of us uh, have this similar story. So, Brant, as we get into this, a little bit about your background, like where did you grow up and sort of your family of origin uh, and just your journey to this place in life? Well, I'm Canadian originally, grew up in a small town on the west coast of Canada, Victoria, British Columbia. Well, and that's where my wife went to university and, and our, I'm located in Vancouver, so like we're nearly related. There, We're very close, so... Um, yeah, so I spent my, you know, my youth in small town Canada, and as a serial struggling entrepreneur, never could find my way through that system very well. It's a little bit different than the U.S. for entrepreneurs, for, you know, so, so the idea of big ideas and, and whatnot just didn't quite, I couldn't grasp on to something solid there. I, you know, I made a TV show back up there that I couldn't sell in Canada came down to the U.S., sold to NBC, got a job, built a life and a career and a family and, and everything um, because of the way this country sort of accepted who I was and what I did. So that was a really big turning point for me. I spent you know, the first 30 years of my life batting my head against the wall in, in Canada and the next you know, like 15 years just finding success and my people and where I'm supposed to be down in Los Angeles. So it was, it was a great turning point for me. Mm. So where did this uh, passion for film and producing and, and producing shows come from in the first place? Uh, it was really, I used to own bars and nightclubs amongst other things. And I used to play the, these stupid games at the bar to keep people there on football day because people would leave the bar as soon as the game, uh, the game was played. So I'd come up with ways to entertain them, and I, I thought that would make a great TV show. I had no business in television, no thoughts about it, no creative instincts, no desire, anything like that. I just thought it was a good idea. But, you know, I poured a bunch of my own money, then a bunch of other people's money, then a bunch of investor money, and just trying to make this TV show work. And I learned the hard way how television in Canada works. It doesn't work like the way you'd expect. Could have probably figured that out before I started. Um, but... You know, it was more like I was just pursuing this idea. And then when things started to work in the U.S., I had sold the, the idea and concept to NBC. I had got this job as a sort of quote-unquote development executive to come up with more ideas. As soon as I found success in that, it was what I was missing in my life. And the acceptance and the appreciation, all of those things really created the drive for television. So I would not say I had a creative or emotional attachment to the entertainment industry, I had an emotional attachment to finally finding what I was meant to be doing. And mm. just to be accepted and celebrated and find success, and that's on an emotional level, on a personal level, on a financial level, it just changed everything. So it wasn't till you know, the years later where you, you reach a bunch of milestones, you have shows on television, you've had hits, you know, you've run. A, I ran a company. I sold a company. I made some money. All of those things. Then you're like, okay, well, what am I in this for again? And that's when I started the transition from entertainment into the business world. Mm. Now, what was the show in Canada that didn't go anywhere, and you had to go down south first? To uh, it was called to... the Ultimate Party Quest, and it was the idea of who are the most fun and interesting and wild, crazy people in Canada. And we went to, you know, 
nightclub to nightclub across the country and play these funny games. And, and then I took all the, the winners from each city and went down to Mexico, spring break kind of craziness. And the format and the structure of how I eliminated contestants, very survivor-like. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what NBC responded to. And so we built the show around that idea. Wow. Wow. I suspect that you are friends with Mark Burnett then. Uh, actually, Mark Burnett was one of the original producers attached to produce my show at NBC. So, yeah, he and I met very, very early. Well, well I've had a chance to meet Bur uh, Mark many years ago at a, an event up here in Vancouver. So one of your shows was The Biggest Loser. Uh, where did that come from? That came from an agent. His name is Ben Silverman, very famous uh, agent, producer, personality in the entertainment industry. And he had actually came up with the idea... Other people had had the idea, but he had basically pitched it at a Super Bowl party to the head of NBC, and they said, if you can find somebody to produce it, basically is what happened. So there was a convergence of people that had that idea, and there was another producer that actually had pitched the idea to NBC like a few weeks earlier, and they weren't going to move forward, and then when it, they got pitched the idea again, they thought, well, why don't you guys partner, and then, hey, you guys need someone to produce the show, and that's when they came to 3Ball, which is the company I was running, and so... And so that actually happened before I got involved. They had actually sold it, got it on the air, started the work um, when I took over the company. So it was it was one of those things where it's a great example of even if you don't know how to deliver on your idea, if the idea is good enough and you pitch it clean enough, somebody will solve your problem for you. Mm -hmm. So what do you mean by that if you pitch it clean enough? Uh, you know, when we think about our audience, there's entrepreneurs, business owners, individuals that are listening. Um, Want to help them today? Just you know, with your you know reverse engineering your three three minute rule uh, for them to kind of apply that to their lives. Well, I think it's a matter of value, right? It's about placing the value on the information you have and laying it out in a story like a Hollywood screenwriter would do. When we tell a story in Hollywood, we do it in piece by piece, scene by scene. We build your connection to the characters, to the audience, to the plight of the protagonist, all of these things. And then the conclusion at the end, you want it, you desire it, you're clapping, you're cheering, you want these things to happen. You want Andy Dufresne to escape from Shawshank Prison. Like, it's part of the way we tell stories. And so what I train clients and what you learn in the book is how to structure your information so that you're leading your audience to the right conclusion. And what you find is there are certain important elements as human beings that we structure first when we make a decision. First, we conceptualize then we contextualize, then we actualize. And we do it in that order for every single decision. So first we go to the concept. What is it? How does it work? We've got to understand those things. Then we look at the context. How does it work for me? How do I get involved? How does this affect my life? And then we actualize. Do I want to talk further? Should I ask my wife? Should you present to the board? How much does it cost? When can you deliver? Like Those are the steps we do for everything we build what's called a rationalization story so that you rationalize it to yourself of why you want to be involved, why you bought it, why you own it, why you're interested. And so what I teach people is, is how to take their information, their business, their product and service, how to convey everything of value in three minutes or less and to mimic the rationalization story that their audience is going to use to say yes. Mm. Now, would that apply to somebody doing an interview for a job or any kind of context of influence? 
Yeah, I do a lot of training in that area as well because it's it's a matter of simplification, right? Simple is the new sexy. Clarity is the new compelling. It's what people want. And, and, and like I have this, this acronym, WAC, W-H-A-C, is how you structure a pitch. What is it? How does it work? Are you sure? Which is where you verify it. And can you do it? Which is who are you? Can you deliver it? And the reason is our brains in this short attention span world are looking for those points right away. How many times have you had somebody blather on about something and inside you're going, could you just tell me what this is? Like, could you just stop and explain how this works? Like, that's what we mm. naturally do. So if you're applying for a job, it's the same thing. The, you just got to get the core information out in its simplest form, in as few words as possible so that your audience can build that story and they just want the value. They don't want neuro-linguistic programming. They don't want fluff. They don't want to hear their own name. They don't want any of the tricks and the tips that we've been teaching sales guys and elevator pitches for decades. Uh, explain uh, to the audience around the difference between elevator pitch and what you're talking about. So an elevator pitch is I see you, I want a thing and I say, hey, uh, Ken, by the way, I have an investment opportunity that can make you 10 times your money by the end of the year. And then you lean in and go, ooh, tell me more. And mm -hmm. does that sound like the way it works in an elevator today? Like if someone said that to you, your first instinct would be total crap, get away from me, not interested. Because that is the form of communication called the state and prove method. It's what advertising has done since the dawn of advertising. I'm going to give you a big claim. You, you can lose weight and lose, you can lose weight and eat anything you want. There's the big claim. And then you're like, oh, I do want that. And then I'm going to show you how it happens and how to get there, right? That is, that is the idea of state and prove where the science behind that of what's called approach motivation is the idea that if I can get you interested in something, you'll focus on it, right? The, the, the desire creates focus. Okay, great. So I want you to desire this big claim and then you'll focus while I tell you the details. And what they found now, scientifically, 2017, the Journal of Emotion, Motivation, and Personality realized that we've trained our audience to be the complete and total 180 degree opposite. Now, focus creates desire. If I give you my precious focus and attention, I want value and I want it right now. And if you don't give it to me, I'm out. I am not paying mm. attention. I'm off to something else. And so that's called the inform and lead method. I'm going to give you the information. And what they found is the more you focus and pay attention, the more you desire the outcome. And that is the trick of a movie. That is how we tell tel television stories. The longer you focus on it, the more you want the outcome. People sat in theaters for three hours to watch Titanic and you know the boat sinks. Okay, that is the power of storytelling in, in the inform and lead method. Mm. So help us understand a little bit more, Brant, about what you mean by focus so that you know, I can transpose this directly into my conversations tomorrow. So... Focus means literally what you pay attention to, what you're, what you're actually compelled to listen to and, and be interested in. And, you know, Microsoft did a study that showed the human attention span is down to 8.2 seconds and a goldfish is at 9 seconds, right? It's a funny joke. I use it on stage. Ha, ha, everybody laughs, right? And it's true. And people assume that it's because of social media and all these other things. 
that we have this short attention span. It's actually not true. We actually focus more intensely and efficiently than ever before. When someone goes to find information, they are looking for the core value right away. They are not interested in reading through articles to get to the sentence. And if you look right now on any article, almost on any news website, you'll see the change. They've now started having bullet points at the top of the article that gives you a kind of a summary of what's going to be there because they know they lose people because people want value and they want information right away. There are too many distractions. There are too many options. There's too many points of entertainment to wait and sit there. The, the, the audience just doesn't have that patience anymore. They're a very sophisticated and hypersensitive audience in the world today. Mm. Now, I'm going to get into your process and protocol that you teach in the book, but I want to digress for a second. How did you become an expert in this and transform from producing these shows and pitches that people were buying into to now into this business world where you're teaching other people how to communicate effectively? Well, you know, it came back from my failed entrepreneurial days way back in the day is there was a times where I needed to raise money. And if I didn't get a $5,000 check from you as an investment in my company, I wouldn't be able to eat. And so what that taught me was not how to sell a ice to an Eskimo or, you know, how to high pressure sales. It was the total opposite. I learned early that you had to be able to pitch your idea without making the other person feel how desperate you were. Because if people smell that, it is hmm. over. And so I learned to be able to focus clearly on the value that I was delivering without promotion or letting people know how desperate I was. And I, and I use it when I'm on stage. I'll say, you know, the greater your desire to achieve your outcome, the more likely you will turn your passion into promotion. And that is the kiss of death. And then there was an incident very early in my career down here in Los Angeles. Uh, I was in the lobby at CBS and waiting to go into the pitch room to pitch my idea. And out of the pitch room walked Simon Cowell. And I remember this, just this sort of dread, like, oh, my God, i got to go into the room after Simon Cowell. This sucks, right? Mm. So he came over and said hi, and we were laughing. And he looked over my shoulder, and we turned around, and it was Mark Burnett had just walked in. And he was checking in because he had the pitch room after me. So I was sandwiched between Simon Cowell and Mark Burnett. And there's not and many I, people who could say that, Brad. Yeah, not fun. And I got this wave of panic, right? This idea that, oh, my God, like, how is the president of CBS going to be impressed with me? Like, what story can I tell? What sort of angle can I use? How will I make myself seem interesting? And I realized I can't. It's not realistic. I just, I had this burning desire to get in and out of that room as fast as I possibly could. And I remember specifically going in there and I like, very little small talk and I was just like, okay, here's the idea. Here's why we think it works. Here's how we're going to produce it. Here's why it works for CBS. Here's how, we, here's how you get it. And that was it. The whole meeting lasted maybe eight minutes. They bought the show. And I remember thinking like, oh man, that was amazing. And I started to develop that habit of let me just make this idea super clear. And then I got this reputation very quickly of having the best pitches in Hollywood. And it was weird because I wasn't working that hard. I wasn't trying to do this. Mm. I was just trying to get the information out. But because it was so different and it came across as so clear and cut through the clutter and wasn't the, hey, let's do lunch kind of vibe, 
it, people genuinely responded to it. And so I just developed the, that pattern. And then, you know, the, this, the story's in the book, but I had an a investment banker ask me to come and work with one of his clients that was trying to raise money for his oil and gas company. And I helped him pitch his oil and gas company the same way I would pitch a TV show. And the guy left a voice message on my phone and just said, you've changed my life. I used to hate doing this. Now I love it. People are responding. My stock's up. I'll never forget what you did for me. And I was just like, oh my God, no network president has ever said that to me. Like, I like that. I got to go do more of that. And so for the last Mm. five years, I've been helping companies simplify and explain what they do and deliver their message and do their, you know, media and presentations and raise money. And it's just been so much more rewarding. And that's why last year I was like, that's it. I'm not doing entertainment as a full-time gig anymore. I'm going to write this book. And it, it, you know, it's gone pretty well from there, obviously. Obviously. Uh, and congratulations on, on meeting the bestsellers list. Uh, that's uh, for those of us that are authors, always look to achieve that. Now, what do you mean by, Brant, passion to promotion? Well, listen, everybody will tell you that you have to pitch with passion. And it's true. You do. Uh, people don't want a wet blanket explaining things to them. I will say in today's world, you're better off being introverted than extroverted in the room when you're pitching because people just are turned off. They're turned off by people that are overly passionate about it. And there's two issues with passion. One is, like I said, passion turns into promotion where it feels like you'll say anything to make this deal. You're being promotional. And that is a huge, huge turnoff. And it just discounts everything you say. No one will take you seriously. No one wants to listen to that. And that's the problem that a lot of elevator sales, pitches type things have been teaching is this sort of passionate push towards things and people just don't respond to it anymore. The other big risk in passion is what I call unjustifiable passion. An unjustifiable passion is something that you're really passionate about that doesn't justify such a response. And I liken it to uh, politics. If you know somebody, you're a Democrat and you know a Republican who's really passionate about Donald Trump, you cannot understand why they would do that. And vice versa, if you're a Republican and you have a, a, you know, a Bernie supporter, you just can't understand or justify why they're so passionate about it. And that's when people unfriend each other. That's when people get in wars. Uh, that's when people get in fights about it is because you just can't justify the passion. And that translates into business. If you're passionate about something that is an opinion about your business product or service, you are hoping that the other person justifies that passion. And most times they think that you are just overly eager about something that doesn't warrant that. And then they question you as a person. And that's really scary. So I always train people to not be passionate about opinions, be passionate about facts, not opinions. Mm. Well, let's scroll back to some of the research Brent that you've done and congratulations on that about what did you learn about, that you want to leave with the audience of things that we've been taught, you've shared a couple already, for people to stop doing before they start doing your stuff. What, what are some of the things that people are doing out there that's really doing a disservice to getting their concept influence heard? Yeah, a couple of things. One is, well, there's three things. They bury the lead, I call it. Um, they want to speak from facts, figures, logic, and reason. They want to start with like products and services. That's the big one. 
And the you know probably the biggest thing is is they just are trying too hard. Those are the three things. Trying too hard is you feel like you have to say everything. And, and like in the book, it's, it's, it's not what you want to say. It's what needs to be said. And the number one phrase I use with clients is, please, just stop talking. Because every single time, they just go on and on. They say too many things. So that's the first thing is that today you don't have to try as hard. The, the other big piece of it is when I look at people that they use their facts and figures and logic and reason is that if you don't have context for the size of the marketplace or the number of available you know elements or the or those things when you don't have context for the facts and the figures they lose value and so many people want to start their pitch with that and it's like yeah I don't even know what you're talking about yet so why do I care how big the marketplace is I don't know how you're gonna attack it I don't have any of the context mm. so you using your graphs and your details and, and all of those facts doesn't have relevance to me yet. And so now you're asking me to like put a pin in that, then hear what you have to do and what you say and then how you're going to do in there and then go back and be like, oh yeah, it's right now. I know how the big market is. And that's just a, it's just a really big mistake that people do a lot. Mm. Um, and, and listen, it's, it's, it's hard to get out of your own way because mm you understand your business or your pitch absolutely perfectly. You know every nuance and every value. And I, and I talk a lot, a lot about this in screenwriting where, you know, the difference between a great screenplay and a bad screenplay to the writers is nothing. The writer of a bad screenplay loves it. And he thinks it's great because he knows every character. He knows every decision. He knows why the motivation is. He knows the twists and turns and how it works. His total and complete understanding make the picture of that screenplay look brilliant, right? Same thing with a guy who directs a crappy movie. You're like, how did you not know that was terrible? Well, it's because to them it's not terrible. And that's the same thing with your business. You know everything so intimately that all you want to do is have people understand it the way you do. But the only way to do that is in small pieces in the right order. I've got to build your base of knowledge as the audience. I've got to give you the pieces, feed them to you so that you build a base of knowledge. That base of knowledge becomes their understanding. That understanding then leads to value. And once they can value what you have to offer in the same way you do, then of course they have to be interested. Mm. Now, you said something about bury the lead. Did I hear that correctly? Yes, bury the lead. So basically, if you have this sort of like something that's that, that what you do, like what is the core, what do you have, what are you offering? A lot of people will wait to build to that. They'll want to set up the marketplace. They'll want to set up how they do it. They want to set up who they are. Who they are. I have oil and gas companies that will start their presentations with four and a half minutes of their collective experience at Chevron and working in British Petroleum because they're getting to the point of like, okay, then here's what our company is, right? And it's the opposite. I need to understand what you do. Okay, you're an oil and gas company. What do you do? Oh, you do mineral exploration in the lower 48. Oh, God. Like, I need to understand those basic pieces first. Now the fact that you have a 12-year history as a senior vice president at Chevron actually has value to me. I am now mm. building the value. So when I say bury the lead, it, and like I make the joke, you're not M. Night Shyamalan. Like you're not, don't Quentin Tarantino the thing. Like that's not you. You're not, just tell me what it is. Let's just get to it. Tell me the story. 
So a lot of times, and I, I use what's called the fire alarm test, is if you started your pitch right now, and at one minute, someone pulled the fire alarm, and everybody had to go outside, and then they're like, okay, building's clear, we can go back in. Is everybody that was in that meeting wanting, are they going to want to go back in and hear the rest? Or if they couldn't go back in, would they have enough to actually understand what you do? If the answer is no, you got big problems. That's called burying the lead. Like, get to the point, what do you do? How does it work? Great. Can you actually verify that? Okay, good. How do I get involved? That's how people want to hear things. Hmm. So with us, how do we break some of those bad habits? And what do you teach us in the book as far as the steps to go forward now so that I can actually bring this approach into my life and into my business? Well, there's two main – I mean, the book is – it's, listen, the book's got some good stories and some good examples, but mostly it's a how-to guide. It is literally how to pitch your business product or service clearly and concisely in three minutes or less. And so I lay out the structure really clearly. The first thing is called the bullet points, where you take what you do, anything you want to convey, and you break it into simple one- or two-word bullet points. You put that on Post-its, you put that on a wall, right? It's an unbelievable exercise, and, and anybody who's seen me on stage, you know, I will put up... 20 bullet points of a business you've never heard of. And just in those words, you know exactly what it is. I will, in the book, I put 25 bullet points from a TV show you've never heard of, you've never seen, and you could pitch it back to me just based on those words. It shows you the power of simplicity and how our mind can connect dots. You know, the, your journey from A to Z does not need every single letter of the alphabet, right? So when you break it into those bullet points, the next is to break those into what I call statements of value, which is instead of one or two world bullet points, you've got single sentences that make sense, and now you're seeing them. Now the next thing you want to do is just to put them in order. And that's why I developed the WAC method, and the book shows you exactly how to put it through that method. Okay, which of these statements speak to what it is, the W? What do these statements speak to how you actually do it? What do these statements are saying people that you're sure. What are the facts? What are the figures? What are the logics? Where's the reason in this, right? How do I verify that? Bang. Can you do it? What is the price? When is it available? How long does it take? What's our next move together? Like those, once you can start to move your bullet points around on a board, you can see it come to life. And that's sort of the, those are the, that's the main thing is simplification. Mm. Get to the point and simplify. And to do that, it's, it's not that easy. Right? That's the problem. It's like it's taken me 20 years to learn how to say things in three minutes or less. And so you need this filter to be able to do it. I had to, I mean, and again, in the book, there's a picture of me actually doing it to my own book. You know, I wrote the book, and then the, off the, the publisher, Random House, is saying, hey, you write the intro after you're done the whole book. You go back and write an intro. I finish the book. I go back to write the intro. I come up with this great idea. Oh, you know what would be funny is the average business book intro is 14 pages, but the average reader decides if they're going to read the book in four pages, which coincidentally takes three minutes, by the way. Mm. So I thought, oh, my God, this is great. I'll do a four-page intro, and I'll use that story. Like, hey, I've only got three minutes to get you to want to read the rest of this book. Here it is. My first pass on my intro was 11 pages long. I'm, I'm an expert at this, and it's 11 pages long. So I sat there on my Jamaican vacation, thought, okay, great. I'm going to take the week, and I'll get my intro done. And I couldn't finish it. I could not get it done because I had just written the book and every piece of information was so good and it was mm. so smart and I was so clever and like everything I wrote was so brilliant 
And I thought, I can't take that out. Oh, I can't delete that. That's just so smart and amazing. Oh, it's so clever. And so by the time I left Jamaica, I still had it six pages. And so I had to come back home, get in my office, pull up my post-it notes, and literally break down my own book intro. And I put a picture of that in the book to be like, hey, you've got to go through the process. And then I put it through my whack filter, and the intro today is three minutes. And it's really good. So, mm. so the discipline to be able to cut back. I mean, we do sales training, Brad, and sometimes we say, uh, you need to shut up because you've sold it, and then you just bought it back. So, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so we... Again, what would be some other things for me outside of them buying the book, which, of course, we're going to suggest everybody uh, do that, it, for, for me to be able to have this discipline to not fall in love with myself, in my own well, words? The, you know, it's important to separate what's information and what's engagement, right? And I have an exercise where I show people how to split those things up because what happens is, is that you, you have something that you really like, that you know is valuable and you want to get in there, but... You, the, the audience needs the information first. So if you look at what informs them of the process and what is something that would be engagement, something that could be a conversation. And what you have to accept is that in those first three minutes or less, if you get them the information and the basic concept and how it works and a few of the details, they will engage. I promise you, you will get to say all the clever things. And that's the one thing you got to start to have confidence in is that you will get to say all those brilliant things. You will get to show them the graphs. You will get to give them details about your case study. All of those things will come true. Three minutes is not the end of it. It's the first three minutes. You have to get them to want to engage first. And I use this story on stage a lot is that imagine if I was going to cater your wedding and I came to you and your lovely bride and the chef I had for your wedding to be there was Gordon Ramsay. Like how many words would I need to sell you on that, right? I'd probably mm -hmm. need four. I have Gordon Ramsay. Think about how you present yourself. That's, that's when you have ultimate confidence in the value you bring. Four words, okay? Now imagine it's my brother-in-law who is an ex-convict who doesn't have a job, who really needs my help and is demanding that I help him get this job. He's never really cooked before. How many words am I going to need to sell you that, right? I'm going to be trying to sell you. I'm going to be pushing it. And that's because I don't believe in the value. And so mm. the value of whatever you're pitching or presenting is somewhere on the scale of value between Gordon Ramsay showing up at your wedding and my convict ex-convict ex brother-in-law who doesn't cook, right? There's, your value is somewhere on that scale. And I tell you, the number of words you use is a direct indication to your audience where you think that value is. The more valuable you believe that you're bringing, the less words you will use. And I'm telling you, your audience picks up on this. They sense it. They know it. Mm. Well, I love the word you used earlier about desperate. I remember in grade 12, my self-esteem was low. And after I got to the 15th girl to go to the Beach Boys concert, they were saying low because I'm going to have this long pitch. Didn't go so well. So uh, how could they smell desperate, right? So clients see it. They, they feel it. They sense it straight away, don't they? Absolutely. And we've trained them. I mean, if you think about what we've done marketing-wise, every single screen, every single minute. I used to, on my keynotes, I used to have a whole section about clickbait. 
I don't even bring that up anymore because no one falls for clickbait anymore. We've trained ourselves that we recognize it right away. As soon as the headline, as soon as the, the, the sort of the pitch on, on your social media or whatever, you don't click on that anymore. We used to get fooled by that. No one does anymore. Imagine mm -hmm. how fast that has, ha that has changed. We are so skeptical. We are so sensitive that none of those claims work. And we're waiting for people to try to promise stuff they can't deliver. It's, uh, that's the world we've been bombarded with marketing. And I'll tell you a great story. It is around the turn of the century, Niagara Falls actually froze, stopped flowing. And there was 5,000 uh, residents in Niagara at the time. And at 3.42 in the morning when it froze, they were jarred awake out of their bed. The town is walking the streets wondering what had happened. It's because the raging torrent of rapids and billions of gallons of water smashing on the rocks continually was a noise that they had just tuned out. And the silence of the falls was the loudest mm. sound they had heard in decades. And today, the raging torrent of rapid fall smashing water is marketing and branding and promises and everything you see on those TV screens. And the audience has just tuned it out. They just don't hear that anymore. And when you speak simply, and when you lay things out in a clear, concise manner, it is cutting through that mess like the silence of Niagara Falls, and it will make you more compelling. It will appear and draw people in more than you have ever seen anything happen. And that's what I'm dealing with every day in the Say Less to get more movement that's kind of going around the book. Mm -hmm. Well, authenticity you're talking about as well versus just CRAP that comes our way almost uh, every second somewhere on yeah. some social media feed. That's right. Now, I want to digress for a bit, Brett. We have about five, eight minutes left. But I want to talk about what are the, the because we're secrets of success for life and you have constructed this brilliant communication model, what have been the skills and capabilities and character traits that you have had to embrace to have the success in life that you could share with the audience? What are well, some of the traits that have really driven you and, and helped I, I you think, to make it? I, you know, listen, I think I'm very, I'm eager to do stuff, right? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a get out and do stuff kind of person. So if you, you know, if you called me and was like, Hey, I need some help moving. Are you bit, like, I'd be like, Oh, all right, let's go do that. Like I'm, I'm the guy who likes to go do stuff, which has been a big help for me. The other piece is, is I've changed from my sort of delusional optimism that I used to have when I was a failed entrepreneur in Canada because I would always just tell myself, it's going to work out, it's going to work out, and you can do it, you can do this, and I would basically look for the shortcut and everything. Mm. Now I've, I've harnessed that in a different way. And I think what a lot of people that face their sort of imposter syndrome, as we all do, Mm. is it really impedes them. And for me, I, you know, I, have, I should have had that, right? There are thousands of television and movie producers that are far more successful than I am that have been pitching longer, pitched more things, sold more things that could have easily written this book and could be doing this, right? And if I focused on that and thought like, wow, this is Mark Burnett. He should be doing this, right? Then mm. I wouldn't have done it. But what I realized early is that the expert is the person that puts up their hand and says they're the expert. And I noticed that from television is that, you know, I would put people 
in a TV show, and the next thing you know, it's like, oh, now they're the foremost expert in this world because they're on TV. And it's like, yeah, I, I didn't qualify every single person in this industry. I just picked the best one for TV. But that is the way this world works. It's like, who's willing to do it? Who's willing to, st who's willing to go and sell the book? Who's going to go do that? Nobody else was doing it. I did it. Now I'm the guy, right? And I think that's been a trait that I've used to my success uh, really well. And I also think that with this training, I've learned to control my personality a little bit more. Like I'm a big personality, big A-type extrovert. And I've seen so many introverted people have so much success with the way I teach that it's helped me become a little more mm. introverted in the process. Because when I work with a client that is very extroverted, it's much more difficult for me because they want to use their personality to overcome the shortcomings in their information because they think they can just entertain people and then they don't mm -hmm. have to answer all the questions. Whereas like a biotech scientist, very introverted, doesn't want to be up there personally in the first place. So when I can show them, oh, here, I can, let your in I can get your information to do all the work, and be the compelling driving factor, they're so excited and they follow the guidelines better. And they really actually do it. Where, whereas the extroverted person, like they want to skip to the head of the line. So this has actually shown me that really clearly and now I, I spend more time personally doing the work more than I would have normally because of this. Mm, mm, for sure. Well, how can people find out about you and your book and where can they get it? Uh, I'm easy to find. The 3minuterule.com has all my information, brantpinvidic.com, and at any of the social media platforms, I'm at Brant Pinvidic. So and I, I, I always try to respond to people. I'll do, you know, I do some webinar stuff for just to, to help clients. I get a lot of people sending me their stuff, so I always try to answer questions. So I'm, I'm an easy guy to target right now. Now, you also have a podcast. So tell us about that. Um, I started a podcast called Why I'm Not, which is where I sort of interviewed people in industries that I just didn't understand and I wanted to get a better sense of it. Uh, so that was, was really fun. And then I, I do another one called IPO, which is Ideas, People, and Opportunity, where I talk to some of the biggest business icons in the world about their big ideas that people didn't believe in to begin with and the sort of origin stories and what that's led to um, from their big ideas becoming reality. Mm, cool. So what would be your final bit of wisdom to encourage the Secrets of Success audience and listeners today, Brant, to kind of go to the next level? Besides buy the book? <laughs> exactly. Well, of course. <laughs> yeah. um, the biggest, if I would just be the simplest version of it is stop trying so hard. It is not that difficult. You know, it's, it, you do not have to hit every note. You don't have to get it right. You just got to get it simple. And the world right now is a lot of try, try, try so hard, try so hard to get better. And it's like, no, not really. The mm. world is like, can you get the information out? People will do the work for you. Just get the information and don't think about anything else. Mm, and be simple about that. Well, uh, Brant, thank you for being with us. Stay on the line. But uh, thank you for uh, sharing your expertise with Rock us. Rock on. Well, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Brandt, and his book is The Three-Minute Rule. So please go there, get it. Uh, as I started the show with, my friend said this is the best book that he has read or listened to on Audible uh, in the last decade, so do that. Now, my encouragement is, 
If you like what we're doing, just please pass it on. Let other people know about the show. Uh, leave a positive comment or a rating on whatever format you're listening on. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keith. Thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.